You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming with Pastor Keith Miller. All right, if you could stand to honor the reading of God's Word. We believe that, God, that the Bible is authoritative. It is the Word of God. It's, a, it's, it's authoritative over our lives, and we, that's why we stand to honor the reading of, of uh, God's Word. We are in the Sermon on the Mount. We're focusing on the Lord's Prayer, and so we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 9. You can read this out loud if you want. The words will be on the screen uh, as well, or you could just, just follow along uh, if you prefer to do that. Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 9, this is the word of the Lord. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You may be seated. So I said uh, last week and the week before, you know, we, as we've been just unpacking the Lord's Prayer, which is not a prayer that's meant to be recited, like some kind of mantra, it is a model for us to pray. It's given to us uh, to, to, to shape our prayers. And I, I said a couple weeks ago that you can, you can divide the Lord's Prayer into two sections. The first related to the six petitions that are here. The first three petitions are, are God word, and then the following three petitions are uh, concerning our well-being. And so we're in the second one that concerns our well-being. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Now, uh, if like in the version of the Lord's Prayer that's in Luke, I believe, chapter 11, uses the word sin in place of debt. And so, just so you know, the word debt here is referring to sin. And, uh, and in this prayer, it's modeled for us, we're encouraged to ask for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, when it comes to sin, I'm reminded of a cat that we used to own. Uh, how many of you have cats? Okay. Wow, I'm impressed. I actually thought, you know, how many of you have dogs? Okay, more of you. More of you have dogs. Okay. Uh, I, our cat, you know, for those of you who are familiar with cats who own cats, you know, you, you, you can hardly hear your cat walk. Your cat, you know... Um, if, if it's normal, uh, is, is pretty quiet, right? Like the cat doesn't, most cats just don't care that you exist, that you exist for it, and it does not exist for you. The way that our, our cat would behave around certain things, especially when it wasn't sure of something, or when it just wasn't really in a hurry, uh, reminds me of the way that we deal with sin in our lives. We're just, we kind of tiptoe around it, we're not really alarmed by it. We, sometimes we approach our own sin in a way where we're just like, meh, you know, it is what it is. And so what I want to do is just get at, what, what is Jesus saying here? Because here's where my brain goes with, this, with the Lord's Prayer. Like last week, we, we, I ended the sermon with Romans chapter 8. Like there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. That, that what can separate us from the love of, of, of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord? No, well, nothing can separate us from, from his love. And then you come to this model that's given to us for the Christian to pray, and you, you, may wind, you may look at this and think, 
Well, so does that mean that I all the time have to ask that God forgive me of my sins so that I don't go to hell or that I, so that I don't lose my salvation? And is my ability to forgive others, like if I don't do that, will, will I lose my salvation? Will my soul be in great peril as a result? Like why did Jesus include it in his prayer? Why, do we have, why are we encouraged to pray for the forgiveness of our sins? Uh, I mean, after all, like the gift of salvation, was, you know, you've, if you've been here for any length of time, I, I, I've showed you from the Bible that like, Jesus paid it all. Like He died on the cross for our sins. He accomplished everything that was needed for the forgiveness of our sins. And so there are, uh, when I think of debt, there are a couple of verses that come to mind. There's Romans chapter 6, which says what? For the, what? The wages of sin is death. So, so the debt that, is, that we incur, that we, that we have to pay, is death. And in Romans chapter 6, it's spiritual death. And then you can go back to Isaiah, it's fine. And then Isaiah 64, verse 6, let's read this together. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. I think the King James says filthy rags. I think that's what the King James translates um, that word uh, to, filthy rags. But so, so, what is, so why do we need to ask for the forgiveness of our sins if we've already been forgiven of our sins? There's, then there's this passage in, again, in Romans chapter 3, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, so that's all of us, right? And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, what's that word? Propitiation. What does propitiation mean? Payment. It means payment. That by, like, God put forward Jesus as a payment by his blood to be received by faith. This is, this is how our debt is, is canceled. And so, uh, as I think about that, I was thinking of something that uh, John Newton said, and I've, I shared this with you, but like, John Newton was an old man when he said this, and he, was, he could barely see, I think he could barely hear. He, he's the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, and he, he, one of the things that haunted him all throughout his life was just his involvement in the slave trade and what he did before he became a Christian. And he said, you know, I'm... You know, I, there's a lot of things I can't remember right now, but, there, but one thing I'm certain of, I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. I quoted a guy by the name of Thomas Watson last week who was a, one of my favorite Puritans. He lived in the 1600s. He wrote a little book called The Mischief of Sin, and he said this of us humans, <laughs> including himself, to love sin is to love a disease. It is true of those who love sin that sin puts a worm into conscience, a thorn into death, Yet that men should love sin shows that madness is in their heart. There is no creature who willingly destroys itself but man. Sin is a silken halter, yet he loves it. You know, and that's kind of our propensity. Like we gravitate towards sin. Even as a Christian, we do that. Like we, we find ourselves, you know, gravitating towards that. I, you know, like so what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7 why do I do the things that I don't want to do? And why, don't, why, why can't I do the things that I know I ought to be doing? You know, what's wrong with me? And then he, then he concludes, he says, who will liberate me from this body of sin? And well, Christ will. Christ will do that. So we struggle with sin all throughout our lives. And so what is Jesus saying here? I mean, like, what is the purpose of 
of this petition about our well-being in his prayer. So what I'd like to do is I'm just going to, in two points, really, I just have two points today, uh, and that I want to focus on our debts that have been canceled. And by doing that, I want to, I, I want to hopefully, I want to help you understand what Jesus is saying here, like how we are, how this ought to shape our prayers, and then what does it look like to forgive those who have sinned against us? What does it look like to forgive the debts of those who, who have a debt against us because of some sin that they've committed or sins that they've committed against us? And so, so what I want to do is have you go to Matthew chapter 18 because there's a parable there that some of you should be familiar with because when we started this sermon series and we got to the second beatitude, um, actually we got to um, Blessed are the Merciful. When we looked at Blessed are the Merciful, we looked at this, this parable uh, and the reason why I want to look at it again is because Jesus uses a word in Matthew chapter 18 that he uses in the Lord's Prayer uh, in Matthew chapter 6, and that word is debt. So he uses the same word debt here. So Peter, just to kind of set things up, Peter asked Jesus, well, you know, how many times should I forgive somebody who sinned against me? Like seven times? So Peter was getting really spiritual. He's trying to look very, sound churchy. Like seven times? That's a, that's a nice number. And, and uh, Jesus said, no, 70 times 7. You know, um, not, just, not just once, not just twice, but a bunch of times. And, and so, you know, Peter was doing the math. Well, how, often, how many times is that? 490 times? I'm supposed to forgive somebody who sinned against me 490 times. So they can sin against me 490 times. But what about 400, the 491st time? Am I, am, do I have to forgive that person? And the point Jesus was making, and he, does, he makes it here in the, in the story, is, no, Peter, you're, you've been forgiven a great debt. And because you've been forgiven a great debt, it should affect the way you treat others who sin against you. And so Jesus told this parable. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read portions of it. The, the kingdom of heaven, verse 23, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle one, or when he began to, uh, to, to settle, one was brought to him who owed him not 1,000 denarii, but 10,000 10, talents. So what is 10,000 talents? Well, I was, I was looking, okay, what would, would 10,000 talents be the equivalent of? Well, it would be the equivalent of a, a normal person's wages if you were to consider that, would be about 160,000 years of wages. It would be the equivalent of somewhere around $2.5 billion. So, so, so what is Jesus saying there? Uh, this person was not able to pay back his debt. There's no way. Um, I, I mean, really, the, it, 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 the, the point is, like, if you worked at McDonald's, not an owner of McDonald's, but you worked at McDonald's all your life and you had a debt of $2.5 billion, there is no way that you will ever be able to pay off that debt. You won't even be able to come close to it. And that's the point in the parable. So, so Jesus continues to tell the story. And, uh, and so since he could not pay, verse 25, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment uh, was to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience on me, and I'll pay it back. 
Which the answer to that is what? Can he pay it back? No, of course not, he can't pay it back. And so the, the master said, had pity on him. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. He canceled it, all, all $2.5 billion of it. He, didn't, he just didn't cancel half of it or three-quarters of it. He canceled all of it. He said, you're forgiven. So you would think that the guy would be filled with all kinds of joy and happiness and would go out and, and just it would, have, would have changed his life. Well, it didn't. We'll get to that part of the story a little later. But the point here is that we're the guy. We're the person who owed 10,000 talents. We're the person who owed $2.5 billion in relationship to our sin before a holy God. And that's us. That's our debt. And we have, our debt has been forgiven. Well, how is it forgiven? It was forgiven through Jesus Christ. The, the payment for that debt. Somebody had to pay the debt. Somebody had to swallow up that debt. And it was Jesus who paid the debt. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, um, let's, read these, let's read this together. Ready? And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. How did God forgive you of your debt? He nailed it to the cross. What was it that was nailed to the cross? Your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins. How many sins is that? All of it, right? He's forgiven all of your sins. And so that's what it looks like to have your debt forgiven. So if that's the case, if all of your debt was forgiven, why did Jesus model for us how to pray and that when we pray, we are to include in our prayers, Lord, forgive us of our debts as we have forgiven those who are indebted to, uh, towards us. Or forgive us our sins. Like, wh what is he saying? There. What, what's the point? Well, I came across the prayer prayed by, uh, I've been on this Puritan binge. <laughs> I've been reading Puritans. I got this collection of prayers called the Valley of Vision, which is a collection of prayers from these different Puritans. I'm not told, their names aren't listed. These are unnamed, unnamed individuals who, listed who lived long ago who followed the Lord, and their prayers were recorded. It's, it's rich, and um, I've really have enjoyed it. Every once in a while, I'll pick it up and I'll read through those prayers. But there was one prayer I came across, and uh, and I, I read it. I read it this week as I was preparing my my sermon, and I want to share it with you. So I kind of I modernized it a little bit so that way it didn't sound as wooden. But I'm going to read it for you, and I think this guy who prayed this prayer understood what Jesus meant when he modeled for us the way that we're to pray and include in our prayers the, the, the petition to have our debts forgiven. He says, so no day of my life has passed that has not proved me guilty in thy, it's supposed to be thy sight. Prayers have been uttered from a prayerless heart. Praise has been often praiseless sound. My best services are filthy rags. Blessed Jesus, let me find a covert in your appeasing wounds Though my sins rise to heaven, your merits soar above them. Though uh, unrighteousness weighs me down to hell, your righteousness exalts me to your throne. All things in me call for my rejection. 
all things in you plead my acceptance. I love that line. I appeal from the throne of perfect justice to your throne of boundless grace. Grant me to hear your voice assuring me that by your stripes I am healed, that you were bruised for my iniquities, that you have been made sin for me, that I might be righteous in you, in, in you, that my grievous sins, my manifold sins, are all forgiven, buried in the ocean of your concealing blood. And I am guilty, but pardoned, lost, but saved, wandering, but found, sinning, but cleansed. And then this last, this last um, line, give me perpetual broken heartedness. Keep me always clinging to your cross. Flood me every moment with descending grace. Open to me the spring of divine knowledge, sparkling like crystal, flowing clear and unsoiled or solid through my wilderness of life. Yeah, I love that. Like, give me perpetual broken heartedness. Keep me always clinging to your cross. I think that's the point in Jesus' prayer. This prayer is a family prayer. It's a prayer for the family of God. Like I said, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount is not meant for the unbeliever. It's meant for the believer. This is what it looks like to, to follow Jesus. You know, um, I, I am forever forgiven. If you're a Christian, you are forever forgiven before a holy God because of what Jesus accomplished because your debt, my debt, was nailed to his cross. Uh, there's, a, there's a word, or two phrases, two, two phrases I want to just share with you. There is, and this is something that the Christian enjoys. The Christian enjoys positional justification and progressive sanctification. So what, is that, what do I mean by that? Positional justification is that I stand before a holy God justified because of what Jesus did on the cross. All of your sins, past, present, and future, have been canceled. You stand before God. Once you stood before God, before you were a Christian, once you stood condemned, unjustified, deserving of his wrath, and because of what happened at the cross, and because of your faith and trust in him, you now stand justified before a holy God. Well, what does that mean? Well, this is what it means. This, what it means is this that no matter how many times you've read your Bible this week, no matter how many times you've prayed, no matter how many times you did not read your, pick up your Bible this week, or, no matter, or no matter the lack of time you spent in prayer, you are, always, you are always before the Father perfectly righteous. What does that mean? This is what it means. You are no better a Christian or no worse a Christian before the God of all creation based on what you do or do not do because Jesus in his perfect righteousness always stands before the Father on your account. Let that settle in your hearts for a little bit. So, so there's like, like, you know, the first, uh, the first beatitude in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the what? Poor in spirit. Well, who are the poor in spirit? The poor in spirit are the, uh, is the one who arrives at the cross recognizing, I bring nothing. I bring nothing to God's table of righteousness. Uh, what I bring is my emptiness. That's what I bring. And, uh, and, and so because of that, I am mindful of my sin. And so the second beatitude is blessed are those who mourn. I mourn over my sin. I grieve over my sin. And, and, and therefore, um, 
I, I lay it all down before the cross, which leads us to the third beatitude, blessed are the meek. The meek are the, is the person who lays down his will or her will before the Father, recognizing that he is not only Elohim who creates out of nothing, he's not only Yahweh who honors, who keeps his covenant promises, he's, a, he's also Adonai who is sovereign. And I, I lay it all before him. And, and so you, the Christian is always mindful of his or her sin. And so you are positionally justified before him. That's, that's where Romans 8, verse 1 comes, comes into play. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where John, chapter 10, comes into play, where Jesus said, nobody will snatch them out of my Father's hand. Talking about you, talking about me, if you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But progressive sanctification is, is completely different in this it is a, you are a work in progress, and so am I. You, the Christian life, when it comes to just practical holiness and just looking more and more like Jesus, feels like a waft. It feels like a dance. It feels like two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, two steps back, doesn't it? And so, so, so that's progressive sanctification. That's where I get the statement that I've made multiple times that God loves you too much to leave you as you are. He will not leave you as you are. The evidence that you have truly placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ is your life is changing. It's changing. Now, your changing life is not what gets you into heaven. What gets you into heaven is what Jesus already accomplished on the cross and validated when he rose from the grave. The evidence that that has taken root in your life is your life is changing. It's changing. And so, you know, in Romans chapter 6, I typically read Romans chapter 6, um, the, those, be, those beginning verses when I do a baptismal service. You know, um, you know, what shall we say to these things? Shall we sin so that grace may increase? And Paul says, absolutely not. <laughs> because the evidence that you're a Christian, that you've been born again, is the desire to not want to sin. Like the desire, I don't want to sin. How many of you would say, could raise your hand saying, I don't like sinning. It makes me feel not great, right? Because there's something, like, and if you do sin, how do you feel afterwards? Do you feel small or dirty or whatever? That's the evidence that God is doing a work in your life. There are, stu there are things that you, that you um, used to do before you became a Christian that did not bother you. Remember those days? And then you met Jesus. And as a result, some of those things have started to bother you. Maybe not all of those things right away, but some of those things. And the, and the more you follow Jesus and the closer you, you walk in fellowship with him, I can guarantee you the more of your sin you will, you, you'll discover and, and the more you'll be disgusted by it. And so, um, so J.I. Packer, who's... Uh, He's home with the Lord. He's written a gazillion books. He's a great, was a great theologian. He said something that I found to be very helpful. He said this of the Lord's Prayer. He said, the Lord's Prayer is the family prayer in which God's adopted children address their father, and though their daily failures do not overthrow their justification, things will not be right between them and their father till they have said sorry and asked him to overlook the ways that they have let him down. Um, 
How many of you have had a good relationship with your biological father? Or had, you know, maybe, maybe, right? Um, how many of you, like, disobeyed your, your dad? Yeah. How many of you disobeyed your dad even though you loved your dad? Okay. How many of you were bothered by the way that you, dis- that you grieved your father's heart? Some of you. No, I'm kidding. Uh, when you're a teenager, it's like, uh, you know, I, you're familiar with the phrase. I've shared it with you. Puberty-induced amnesia. It's, um, they forget. But I remember, like, when I, when my father had his hand cut off and was in the hospital, and I've shared this story with, with you. Most of you have heard it. You know, I, I was home or at my friend's house getting drunk all week, just drinking. And I was 15 years old. My dad almost died. Uh, they were able to reattach his hand, but he, he was never the same as a result. And so he, was, he had gotten home. Uh, he came home, and somehow they knew where he and my, stepfather, or my stepmother knew where I was, and they called me home. And I came home drunk, and it broke my father's heart. Now, even though it broke my father's heart, and we had a very good relationship, even though it broke my father's heart, did anything change in terms of my identity? Did I, in that moment of disobedience, become something other than what I was? I was a son of Butch Miller. And that remained the same even though I came home drunk. And uh, that remained the same even though it grieved my father's heart. It really broke my dad's heart that I would do that. When my dad, out of anger and frustration, and I said, you know, God, our Heavenly Father does not get frustrated because he's Adonai, he's sovereign. But my dad, just out of pain and hurt, um, grabbed my stuff, after he told me to go to my bedroom, grabbed my stuff, told me to follow him, threw my stuff out the door, my jacket, my shoes, and said, I never want to see you again. Now, he didn't mean that, but he said it. And so that night, I went to a friend's house and continued, and didn't it was in the, they wouldn't, my friend's parents wouldn't let me drink with them because that's what they did. They were the neighborhood party place. But I got high with them. But the next day, because of what I did to my father, I contemplated killing myself. I contemplated suicide. I contemplated what would it, be, what would it, you know, what would it take to, to cut my wrists. Like, I seriously contemplated that. And then I, later on that day, I heard that my dad was looking for me. And you know what I did? I went home. And I was grounded forever, like as a result. But, but nothing changed. I was still his son. I, I, you know, even if I went home and I said, even if I went home and I never apologized, never said I'm sorry, nothing would have changed. Knowing my dad, nothing would have changed. I remained his son. That I, that I was his child. He was not going to disown me. Um, I did apologize, and you know our right relationship was restored. J.I. Packer is saying, is saying the same thing here. When we go before our Heavenly Father and we ask, forgive us our debts as we, as we forgive those who have sinned against us or those who are indebted to us, we're going to our Heavenly Father. We're, that's the very first thing that we're, that, that we're told how we can approach God. We approach Him as Father. Not as some deity out in some distant planet or whatever. He is God. And we can approach him and call him Daddy, our Father. He is 
Adonai. He is, uh, he is Elohim. He is, he is Yahweh. He is all those things. And we get to call him Daddy. If you're a Christian in this room, you are a son or you are a, a daughter of the living God. And when we go to him, after we sin, it's, our sin does not overthrow our justification because Jesus paid for it all. But it does, it does bring in step our relationship with him. It does reconcile us to him when we confess our sins. I think that's what the Apostle John meant when he wrote 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Like, let's read this together, ready? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is progressive sanctification. This is the organic part of our relationship with this God that we can approach as our Father. He is our Heavenly Father. And which leads me to you know, the, the second point is that what does it look like to forgive the debts of others? So we stand positionally justified. We are experiencing progressive sanctification in our relationship with the Lord. We go to him when we sin and we confess our sins, knowing that what Jesus accomplished on the cross is enough. But what about those who sin against us? Because like Jesus didn't stop with this guy who owed 10,000 talents, his debt being canceled. He didn't stop with the debt being canceled. The story continues. He was released, and what did he do? He went and he found another servant that owed him money. Well, how much did he owe him? Well, the equivalent of maybe $4,000. So if this guy owed $2.5 billion and he was forgiven of that debt, the person he found owed him $4,000, which is a lot of money, but, but not unpayable. And he demanded that this person pay off his debt, and he choked him, and he threw him in prison. And, and that's, what, that's what Jesus tells us here. He, so, he, so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me. He says the same thing that the guy who was forgiven of the debt said, but he refused, and he, went and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. How are you able to pay a debt if you're in prison? Right? So... When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that, that, all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Now it'd be fine if that story ended there. If Jesus just said, okay, close, this, close the book, story over, moral of the story is um, you've been forgiven, you should also forgive others. But he didn't stop there. There's one more verse in verse 36. So also, my heavenly Father, my, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Does that bother anybody? I mean, it bothers, you know, it should. Like, what, is, what does Jesus mean there? And how does that inform our understanding of the Lord's prayer? Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted towards us. Well, right from the, just right off the bat, I'll say that forgiveness in the life of the Christian 
is a birthmark of the one who belongs to God. Okay? So um, here's what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying you will lose your salvation if you're unwilling to forgive the one who has sinned against you. He is not saying that if we forgive others of their sins, our sins will also be forgiven. Those are two things he is not saying. I don't believe Jesus is saying that, especially in light of the context of the Gospel of Matthew. What is Jesus saying? Well, there is an unbreakable connection between God's forgiveness of our sin and our forgiveness of other people who sin against us. That, um, like one of the things that was impossible for you to exercise or to, to do before you became a Christian is to love God in the way that you were called, that were called to love him. Like it's just, but the evidence of a Christian or the evidence that you've been born again or the evidence that you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the evidence of that, at the very bare minimum, the evidence of that is a love for God. Well, how, how, do, I, how do I know that? You know, because of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, I believe it's verse 22, says, if anyone has no love for God, anathema. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's used a couple times in the New Testament. It's used in 1 Corinthians, and it's also used in Galatians chapter 1, verse 9. If anyone, has no, if anyone preaches a different gospel than the one I, Paul, preach, may he be anathema. Well, if any, in Corinthians, it says, if anybody has no love for God, well, then anathema. The word means damned. That the evidence that you belong to God is that you love him. Now, that doesn't mean you have a perfect love for him, but you love him. Love has been birthed in your heart as a result of your salvation. And not only do you have this love for God, but you now have the ability to love one another and to forgive others. So that's where I get the unbreakable connection. You see this. Read 1 John. Read 1 John sometime. And secondly, a forgiving, a forgiving spirit is a part of what it means to be a Christian. That if you've been forgiven, you're going to have the ability to forgive. If you've been forgiven by God the Father, you're going to have the ability to forgive your neighbor. And if you are an unforgiving person, you may not be a Christian. If you're an unforgiving person, and what that means is you just do not have the capacity in yourself to forgive others, then you, either, you, you probably never understood the gospel and you may not be a Christian. And so, I mean, I, I don't know how else you explain what Jesus said there. Like, if you are like the unforgiving servant, my father will do the same thing to you as, this, as the master did to the unforgiving servant. Um, so, back to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, our, our Abba, you know, our Daddy, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Like, there's nothing in here that says, hallowed be my name. <laughs> like, hallowed be your name. What does that mean? May, the, may, may, you know, may your name be hallowed. May, may the spread of the renown of your name be, be experienced you know, throughout the nations. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Well, where? In my heart, in my world, like, may your kingdom come. Your will be done in my life and in this world. 
give us our daily bread. You know, we looked at that last week. Give us our daily bread for tomorrow. God, wake me up tomorrow morning because the fact that I, that I will get up tomorrow morning is a sheer testament of your grace upon my life. That I'm breathing right now is a testament to your goodness in my life. Um, and that is your grace. You, don't have, you didn't have to wake me up this morning, but you did. And on the heels of that, on the heels of that petition, give us our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. It's a reminder of the, of the grace of God upon our lives. Like it's all been provided at the cross for the forgiveness of our debts. We're recipients of that, and we can go to our Heavenly Father knowing that when we sin against Him, that we can go to Him in sorrow, and He will not reject us. He will not reject us. He will not turn you away. No matter what you've done, He will not turn you away. As we forgive those who are indebted to us. It, it's the message of Christmas. Like You probably received a Christmas card by now with Luke chapter 2 on it, my, my guess is. Either Luke chapter 2 or, or some verse in Isaiah. Fear not. For behold, I bring you, what? Good news. Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For you know, How many people? All the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And he's not an imperfect Savior. He's a perfect Savior. He, is the, he has the ability to save you from all of your sin. And if you're a Christian, the good news is that the gospel, God's grace, met you in the darkness of your own sin, and now you are guilty but pardoned, lost but saved, wandering but found, sinning but cleansed. You are a child of the living God. You are a son, you are a daughter of the living God, and we can go to this God in prayer and be received as a, as a son or as a daughter. That's good news, isn't it? That's good news. So um, just a challenge that I have for you as I, as I you know, wrap this up. I, I said at the beginning of the sermon series and throughout the sermon series that the Sermon on the Mount calls us to the center of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Right? Like this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is not, Jesus didn't preach the Sermon on the Mount you know, winking at his disciples with a little nod, saying, you can't do this, but I'm just going to tell you anyway. Like, he expects us, this is, this is his desire for our lives, and this is what we're moving towards. It's the progressive sanctification piece of it. And in the middle of this, he includes a model for the way we are to pray. That should tell us something about the role of prayer in our lives. Like, Jesus depended upon prayer. It was it was the fuel for, for his mission while he was on earth before he went to the cross. Even on the cross he prayed. He prayed all the time. And he gave us a model for us to pray. So why is praying, especially with one another, why is it awkward? It, it, doesn't it, like, I, don't, I don't understand it. And I, I'm, I'm guilty here too. Like I'm throwing myself into the, I feel awkward sometimes when I'm praying with other people. Like Why is that? I mean, I think maybe part of it is that the enemy, the devil, whatever, doesn't want us to pray. But we need prayer. 
like we need bread. Like every great move of God in, his, in history has followed on the heels of his people praying. So January 1st is coming. That's, that's Sunday. <laughs> now Christmas Day is also a Sunday and we're, we're not going to be meeting on Christmas Day here. Um, which I always feel weird say, saying. Like on Jesus' birthday that we set aside, we're not going to worship together. I don't, I'm still wrestling with that. But I was part of the I made part of, that was part of me making the decision that we're not meeting. But we're going to meet on New Year's Day. And we'll have both of our services, even though it probably will be a little light in attendance. And this is what I want you to pray for. Because I'm, I'm, that's my way of guilting you into this. Um, <laughs> I want to, on, on that Sunday... There are a lot of things that are happening, you know, in the life of our church family. There's a lot of change, not just here in our church, but also in our nation, in our city. There's just a lot. In your lives, personally, there's probably, there's a lot of stuff I'm sure that's going on. I want to set aside that day when we gather together for me not to preach a sermon for 40 or 45 minutes, but for us to pray. Now, some, how many of you are introverts in this room? Like, I just scared the living daylights out of you. Like, what? <laughs> um, I'm going to get sick that day. Um, <laughs> it will be structured. So I'm not going to try to make it feel awkward. It will be structured. And I'm going to structure it after the, the, the way our Savior modeled prayer. That's how we're going to structure it. We'll still sing some songs together, and we, but it will be a little different. Our worship service will be a little different. We're going to pray just to begin 2023 you know, together as, as Christ followers. And, um, and we'll have in that time of prayer an op- a time for us to pray over some of you who just feel like, man, I'm just hanging by a thread right now or I'm, I'm dealing with illnesses that I haven't been able to get rid of and, or whatever. We'll, we'll, ha- we'll include that also. But we're going to pray. Does that sound okay? And, um, and that's how we're going to begin the, the, the new year. Christmas Eve, you receive one of, those, um, one of these inv- invite cards. So for Christmas Eve, invite as many people as you can think of to our Christmas Eve service. Uh, it will be a candlelight service. We'll have cookies. It will be great. Every year it's, just, it's really special. But be praying who it is that you, that you should be you know, inviting to, to uh, our Christmas Eve service. I think it should be everybody. But um, we have plenty of these. So grab a stack of them and invite as many people as, as you're able to. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this model for prayer that our Savior has given us. And um, God, we want, we want to be what the Sermon on the Mount calls us to be. And so God, have your way with us. For anyone in this room who does not yet know you because they do not yet know your Son, God, I pray that they would hear these words that their salvation, salvation is found in no one else but the name of Jesus. That all who confess Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that you, O God, raised him from the grave, will be saved. For the rest of us, God, may we cling to the cross, always mindful of our sin, always aware that you are our Father who will forgive. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.